Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Todd Beamer had a job that forced him to travel up to four times a month, sometimes for as long as a week. He was a frequent flyer. In 2001, he earned a five-day trip to Italy with his wife because he was a top performer in his company. They returned home from their Italy trip late on Monday afternoon in mid-September, and while he could have left that night for a Tuesday meeting in California, he chose instead to spend time with his family, and his wife was pregnant and due in January with their third child. He woke up early the next morning. His bags were packed. He was ready to go. He was standing there outside their door by 6.15. He planned to take a flight from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, California, spend the day working with the Sony Corporation, but he wouldn't be gone long. He had a return on a red-eye flight that same night. Unbeknownst to Todd, another man named Mark Bingham was running late for that same flight. He made it just in time. In fact, he was the last passenger to board United Airlines Flight 93. Mark was a big, fit guy, and as an undergraduate at the University of California, Berkeley, he played on two national championship-winning rugby teams in the early 1990s. Upon graduation at the age of 21, Mark Bingham proudly came out as gay to his family and friends. He was taking this flight for business and also to participate in a friend's wedding. He sat down right next to a third man named Tom Burnett. Tom Burnett and his wife had four daughters and lived in California. Tom was vice president of sales and marketing for a medical device company. He left home that morning reluctantly. For some reason, he had a terrible sense of foreboding, which he had expressed to his wife, and these feelings pushed him into attending church daily in the year prior to his flight. These men, along with the help of several other passengers aboard Flight 93, had no idea that they would soon become heroes. In this moment, as they felt the strain of making the flight, getting through security, and finally boarding the plane, they felt just like the rest of us would. That would all change shortly after the plane took off. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. Please excuse the boat and water noises you may hear in the background. I do live aboard a boat with my family, and I've found that it's best to warn listeners ahead of time of the inevitable background noise. Today we're visiting New York, New York City to be exact, home to 8 million where over 800 languages are spoken. According to sources I found, it's legal to go topless in New York City, but farting in a church could land you with a misdemeanor charge. While much of today's story ends in New York, it actually starts in three different places. Boston, Massachusetts, Newark, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C., Virginia. On Tuesday, September 11, 2001, the weather was beautiful in the sky. It was a nearly cloudless day in the eastern United States where millions of men and women are getting ready for work. Some of them are making their way to the Twin Towers, the signature structures of the World Trade Center in New York City. Others are going to Arlington, Virginia, to the Pentagon. Across the Potomac River, the United States Congress is back in session, and at the end of Pennsylvania Avenue, 
people are lining up for a White House tour. In Sarasota, Florida, President George Bush went for an early morning run. The day was beautiful, just perfect. Passengers made their way through security and began boarding planes in Boston, Washington, and Newark. Our three passengers are climbing on board a flight from Newark, New Jersey to San Francisco, California. Their plane is a 757 with only 20% capacity and only 37 passengers and seven crew. This is the kind of flight I dream of, barely filled and plenty of space to spread out. Maybe they felt the same way. The plane is scheduled to leave on time. Pilot Jason Dahl enters a secure area at Newark International Airport and begins preparations to fly the plane from Newark to San Francisco. There he meets Leroy Homer, who was the first officer for the flight. The flight attendants also gather for a short briefing and to divide responsibilities. At the time, check-in is beginning for many of the passengers who are about to board this flight. These passengers range in age from 20 to 79. They are college students, retirees, and businessmen and women. Ten passengers are seated in first class. The rest of them have been seated right behind first class in the coach section. There are four Middle Eastern men in first class, and they take up seats around six other passengers in the first six rows. At least ten of the passengers and crew on Flight 93 planned to take an earlier or later flight that day and found themselves on this flight due to schedule changes. One of these passengers telephones her husband in California, telling him that she will arrive home an hour earlier than expected. Her car service arrived at the airport early, which allowed her to take Flight 93 instead. Her words were, Hey, I just wanted to let you know I'm on the 8 o'clock instead of the 9.20. At 8.01, Flight 93 pulls away from the terminal. It's just one minute behind schedule, and all 44 passengers and crew are accounted for. Usually it only takes about 10 to 15 minutes before a plane will take off, but this flight doesn't take off on time. It takes off 25 minutes late. This is because air traffic is heavy at the Newark airport, which often causes delays on the runway. When the plane finally does take off, four minutes later another plane, Flight 11, crashes into the World Trade Center. On that plane, a flight attendant named Amy Sweeney was speaking with American Airlines and she reported the following. We're flying low. We're flying very, very low. We're flying way too low. Oh my gosh, we're way too low. And this was only a moment before the plane crashed into floors 93 to 99 of the World Trade Center's North Tower. Everyone on board and an unknown number of people in the building are killed immediately on impact. Four minutes after Flight 11 crashes into the World Trade Center, President Bush learns of the disaster. He finds out while he's in a Florida children's classroom speaking to children about education and reading. At 9.03, a second plane crashes into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. As these attacks are unfolding, air traffic controllers begin issuing warnings to pilots of all planes that were up in the air. They are warning flight staff not to let anyone breach the cockpit or control center of the airplanes. At 9.22, after learning of the events in the World Train Center on television, Leroy Homer's wife, remember he was the first assistant to the pilot on Flight 93, was sent a message from his wife asking if he was all right. This message reached the cockpit at 9.24 a.m. Two minutes later, the pilot, Jason Dahl, was puzzled by an incoming message. 
The message was from flight control warning the staff about not allowing the control areas to be breached. He responded to the flight controllers asking for confirmation of the latest message. It seemed unbelievable. Only two minutes later, at 9.28, a mayday call was made by Leroy Homer. A second mayday call was heard 30 seconds later. The hijacking of Flight 93 had reached the cockpit. The third hijacked plane was only nine minutes away from striking the Pentagon. While Leroy Homer was shouting, Mayday, Mayday, there were additional sounds heard by the air traffic controllers. They heard, Get out of here, out of here, out of here, get out of here. The plane was seen to quickly drop 700 feet in 30 seconds before the hijackers were able to take full control of the aircraft. The hijackers quickly moved the passengers to the back of the plane to minimize any chance that the crew or passengers would interfere with the hijacking. No one knew at the time, but the other planes had been taken by five-man teams. Flight 93 only had four hijackers. It was believed that the fifth hijacker was unable to participate because he had been denied entry into the United States a month earlier. Just minutes after they had taken control of the plane, the terrorist pilot, Zayad Jara made an announcement saying, Ladies and gentlemen, hear the captain please. Sit down and keep remaining seating. We have a bomb on board, so sit. It's believed that Jara tried to make the announcement to passengers, but pressed the wrong button and sent the message to Cleveland air controllers instead. It was heard and believed that there was a wounded man, likely Pilot Dahl, moaning in the cockpit. The man pleaded, crying out, no more, no, repeatedly, as the hijackers shouted for him to sit down and stop touching something. It's believed that Dahl took actions to interfere with the hijackers. He may have been disengaging the autopilot and rerouting the plane's radio frequency so that terrorist Jara's attempts to communicate with the passengers were instead transmitted to air traffic controllers. A woman who was thought to be the first-class flight attendant, Debbie Welsh, is heard over the radio struggling with the hijackers. She was pleading, please, please don't hurt me. Terrorist pilot Jara instructed the autopilot to turn the plane around and head east. At the same time, the aircraft was climbing to 40,000 feet. Air traffic controllers in the immediate vicinity moved several aircraft out of Flight 93's path. The woman in the cockpit was heard saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, before being killed or otherwise silenced. This silence was followed by one of the hijackers saying in Arabic, Everything is fine. I finished. Jarrah made another announcement in his broken English a couple minutes later. He said, Here's the captain. I would like for you all to remain seated. We have a bomb on board and we're going back to the airport. We have our demands, so please remain quiet. In the cockpit, the wounded man, Pilot Dahl, continued to moan and likely kept disengaging the autopilot. The terrorists were having trouble managing the plane. They eventually were heard to say, inform them and tell them to talk to the pilot, bring the pilot back. As these calls were being made from the cockpit, there were many more calls being made from the back of the plane. The first of the phone calls began at 9.30. Passengers used the GTE earphones and their personal mobile phones. Altogether, the passengers and crew made 35 airphone calls from the plane. Ten passengers and two crew members were able to connect. These phone calls provided information to the family and friends and others on the ground. Passenger Tom Burnett made several phone calls to his wife, Tina, beginning at 9.30. He had been seated in first class, 
but was making a phone call from the back of the plane. He also explained that the plane had been hijacked by men, claiming to have a bomb. He said that a passenger had been stabbed with a knife and that he believed the bomb threat was a ruse to control passengers. He went on to say the stabbed passenger was dead after having failed to find a pulse. It's believed that passenger, Mark Rothenberg, was the stabbing victim. He was the only passenger in first class that didn't make a phone call after the hijacking. He was also seated in 5B. One of the terrorists sat directly behind him in seat 6B. The assumption was that the attack was unprovoked. It was done with the sole purpose of scaring the passengers and crew into compliance. Another, second theory is that Rothenberg may have attempted to stop the hijackers by confronting them. Tom's wife, in turn, informed him of the attacks on the World Trade Center, and Tom replied that the hijackers on Flight 93 were talking about crashing this plane. He realized that it was a suicide mission on behalf of the terrorists. Quick-thinking Tom began to ask his wife details about the attacks on the World Trade Center. She informed him of the attack on the Pentagon that just happened. Burnett relayed this information to the other passengers. He then told his wife that he and another group of passengers were putting together a plan to retake the plane. He ended his last phone call by saying, Don't worry, we're going to do something. A flight attendant named Sandra Bradshaw called the maintenance facility reporting that the flight had been hijacked by men with knives. They were in a cabin and on the flight deck. She had said that they had stabbed another flight attendant, probably Debbie Walsh, who'd been heard earlier pleading for her life. A pregnant passenger named Lauren Graham called her husband, leaving the following message. Jack, pick up, sweetie. Can you hear me? Okay, I just wanted to let you know there's a little problem with the plane. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. I just want to tell you how much I love you. Several other passengers made phone calls telling friends and family about the hijacking. They described the hijackers as dark-skinned men who looked Iranian. They were wearing red bandanas and wielding knives. A man named Jeremy Glick called his wife and kept in contact with her until the end of the flight. He reported that the passengers voted to rush the hijackers. He had a black belt in karate and had been a national judo champion. As their call ended, he told her that he loved her and needed her to be happy. Passenger Todd Beamer, who was introduced at the beginning, attempted to call his wife, but was routed to one of the GTE operators instead. He told her that the plane had been hijacked, and two people, who he thought were pilots, were on the floor and were injured. He told her that one of the hijackers had a red belt with what looked like a bomb strapped to his waist. When the hijackers turned the plane around sharply, Beamer briefly panicked, exclaiming, We're going down! We're going down! He later left the line open with her, so she was able to hear everything that was going on near the phone until the end of the flight. A passenger named Marion Britton called her friend. She said to him that she knew the terrorists were going to kill the passengers. She said, You know we're going to die. Her friend tried to calm her, saying, Don't worry, they hijacked the plane. They're going to take you for a ride. Go to their country, and then you'll come back. You'll stay there for a vacation. Looking back on the phone call, her friend said, I didn't know what to say. What are you going to say in that situation? She kept on yelling the same things over and over. She continued to scream and yell. I personally have no idea what I would say if someone called me telling me they were in danger like these people were. Initially, I'd probably think they were joking or trying to pull a prank on me, 
And then I'd probably ask a ridiculous amount of questions trying to figure out a solution. In other words, I probably wouldn't be much help. Flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw, while she was on the phone with her husband, told him that she was boiling water so that they could throw it at the hijackers. At 9.53, while she was still speaking on the phone with her husband, she said, everyone is running up to first class. I've got to go. Bye. At the same time, Todd Beamer was telling the GTE phone operator that he and a few passengers were getting together and planned to jump the hijacker that had the bomb. He recited the Lord's Prayer, which prompted others to join in. He made one last request of the telephone operator, telling her, If I don't make it, please call my family and let them know how much I love them. After this, the operator heard muffled noises. I'm sorry, I had to take a minute to gather myself there. The operator then heard Beamer saying, Are you okay? Let's roll. At 9.57, the passengers began their revolt. C.C. Lyles, who after six years as a police officer and detective, chose to switch her career. She wanted to become a flight attendant, and so she did. She made a call to her husband and told him the passengers were forcing their way into the cockpit. The passengers attacked the man guarding the door with his bomb. Then they tried to force the door open. Meanwhile, the pilot, in an attempt to stop them, began to rock the plane right and left, trying to knock the passengers off balance. He yelled to another hijacker in the cockpit, They want to get in here. Hold it from the inside. Hold it from the inside. Hold. He changed his tactics a few seconds later and began to pitch the nose of the airplane up and down. The cockpit voice recorder captured the sounds of crashing, screaming, and the shattering of glass and plates. Three times in a period of five seconds, there were shouts of pain or distress from the hijacker outside the cockpit, suggesting that the man who was standing guard outside was being attacked by the passengers. The pilot stabilized the plane at 10 o'clock. A few seconds later, he asked, Shall we finish it off? They had been fighting off the passenger revolt for seven minutes. The other hijacker responded, No, not yet. When they all come, we'll finish it off. The pilot began pitching the plane up and down once again. A passenger in the background cried out, and the sound was heard in the cockpit. The words were, if we don't, we'll die. Sixteen seconds later, another passenger yelled, roll it, possibly referring to the food cart. The voice recorder captured the sounds of passengers using the cart, or possibly a fire extinguisher, as a battering ram against the cockpit door. At 10.01, the pilot began reciting his prayers. When finished, he said, Is that it? I mean, should we put it down? The other hijacker responded, Yes, put it in and pull it down. The passengers continued their assault on the door, and at 10.02, a male passenger was heard saying, Turn it up. A second later, the hijacker yelled, Pull it down, pull it down. A struggle was taking place in the cockpit. A few seconds later, the terrorist pilot made a desperate plea in Arabic, screaming, Hey, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, over and over. It's believed that he was talking about the plane's yoke or steering wheel. The hijackers in the cockpit were yelling now over the sounds of breaking glass. The last words spoken into the recorder came from a calm voice in English, instructing, Pull it up. The plane then crashed into an empty field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. From the time the passengers began the attack on the terrorists and tried to gain entry to the command station of the plane, until the plane crashed, was only nine minutes. 
They crashed just minutes after the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. Vice President Dick Cheney in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, deep under the White House, had authorized that Flight 93 would be shot down. But upon learning of the crash, he's reported to have said, I think an act of heroism just took place on that plane. According to the accounts of cell phone conversations with passenger Glick to his wife, he, Todd Beamer, Mark Bingham, and Tom Burnett had formed a plan to retake the plane and encouraged others to help with these efforts. His last words to his wife were, we're going to rush the hijackers, and then he hung up the phone. At 10.03 a.m., the residents of Stony Creek Township, Pennsylvania, began making 911 calls to report the crash. The shockwave from the plane hitting the ground tore insulation from a building in the area, and the resulting fireball rolled over hundreds of acres. Black smoke lingered for two days. Forty of the 44 people on board were heroes, and we honor them in their conquering spirits. Shanksville High School students, who were 12 miles away from the crash site, felt the impact. Their school shook, and they heard the windows rattle. Some teachers told their students to take shelter under their desks, while other teachers and students ran to the windows, where they saw a huge black cloud of smoke rising from the crash site. Twenty-five minutes after Flight 93 crashed, the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. By 12.15, airspace over the entire continental U.S. had been cleared. No commercial or private flights were allowed. 4,500 aircraft had been forced to land. At 6 p.m., the governor of Pennsylvania held a news conference. He said, it's difficult to describe the range of emotions everybody feels when they not only learn about the incidents today, but they've actually seen them. The dictionary is not adequate, and there aren't enough words, but I guess the range of emotions goes from rage to anger to sorrow to horror to, I guess, a little sense of nausea that we all feel. The most telling sight is a gaping hole, and there's very little debris visible. Sixteen volunteer firefighters worked for ten hours that day and then began assisting the FBI in the recovery investigation and body recovery of the flight and its victims. When a plane that large and moving at that kind of speed hits the ground, it essentially becomes a bomb, and the site certainly looked like a bombing. The passengers' physical forms had pretty much been obliterated. One of the men in charge of the crash site said he quickly learned to delegate responsibilities. His task was to find and identify everyone who had been killed. Identifying the bodies was extraordinarily difficult, as most of them had been vaporized by the impact and the intense heat. Parts of the plane and the victims were blown over 70-plus acres. Trees had to be climbed to recover human remains. Cadaver dogs were not much help. They were lost as to what to do because the scent of death was everywhere. It was an overwhelming situation. The recovery teams only managed to recover 8% of the bodies, and not one single body was intact. One casket was sent home to the victim's family, only holding a quarter-sized piece of skull. Most of the remains were buried at the site, which is now a national memorial. Even with all the challenges of identifying and finding the bodies, all the victims were eventually accounted for. If these brave Americans hadn't revolted against the terrorists, this plane may have killed thousands more people. A total of 2,996 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks, 
including the 19 terrorist hijackers aboard the four planes. Citizens of 78 countries died in New York, Washington, and Pennsylvania. At the World Trade Center, alone, 2,763 died after the two planes slammed into the Twin Towers. This number includes 343 firefighters and paramedics, 23 New York City police officers, and 37 Port Authority police officers who are trying to complete an evacuation of the buildings and save the office workers trapped on the higher floors. The plane that hit the Pentagon killed 189 people, including the 64 who had been on the plane. 44 people died when Flight 93 crashed in Pennsylvania, but it may have been headed to the White House, the U.S. Capitol, Camp David, or one of several nuclear power plants along the eastern seaboard. At 9 p.m. on September 11th, President George Bush delivered an address from the Oval Office declaring that the terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. We all know terrorism is worldwide. There have been police killings in Sri Lanka, embassy bombings, attacks on subways in Tokyo airports, or airports in Scotland, camps in Nigeria, mass shootings, suicide bombings, and so much more. It's never going to stop, as there are too many disagreements in this world. But for a moment, perhaps most of us can take some time and remember all the innocent people who die, people who didn't ask to be a part of any message, people who have families and friends just like ours who miss them every day. Maybe you can take a moment today, or on September 11th, or any day of your choosing, to appreciate the heroes who come forward and try to help in these situations, the men and women who risk their own lives to help others. Take a moment to recognize and praise the people in authority who come and help, not just because it's their job, but because it's their calling. Take another moment to thank those who come forward just because it's their nature. Maybe it's a market vendor who carries an injured child away from a bomb site, or maybe a grandchild helping their grandparent who's too feeble to get away on their own, find a place of safety. These people are the pillars of our community and humanity. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, I have some special thank yous today. I'd like to thank those of you who have taken the time to give a nice rating and review. It's always greatly appreciated. The most recent review reads five stars. Interesting stories. I appreciate that there's no annoying banter. I like the boat sounds. Thank you, Anonymous fan. I'd also like to thank Jeannie F. for her kind words on social media and for sharing the podcast with her friends. If you'd like to share a case with me or discuss any of the cases I've covered, please reach out to me on social media. There are links in the show description to those, and there are links available where you can make a donation to the show and fill my cup if you'd like. This can be done as a one-time contribution or monthly. Every little bit helps. Thanks again, and until next time, I'm wishing you all fair winds and following seas.